Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. If you're suffering in this way, it has to be that God is punishing you for sin. That's their theology. And they need it to be true. It's not. Because if it's not true, then what Job is suffering then would certainly, it would be plausible that they too could suffer a similar fate. And that's something that they cannot even begin to imagine. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Barag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Job. Job's friends had an incorrect theology that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Pastor J.D. tells us that because of their incorrect theology, they were incapable to show grace to Job. They had to believe that he had done something wrong or accept that they too could receive hardship without reason. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. in Job chapter 14 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. All right, let's jump in. Verse 1, chapter 14. Uh, Job is still now speaking. I'll just give you a quick backstory and we'll get... Uh, going here, but uh, his friends, his so-called friends, as, as I'm going to refer to them, uh, all three of them are and have been just a miserable, uh, you know, uh, source of accusation and rebuke and everything in between. They have heaped insult to injury as Job is here sitting on an ash heap of burnt rubbish and scraping with sharp objects his boils which cover him from head to toe. That's just the physical suffering. He's also suffered emotionally the loss of all ten of his children, seven sons and three daughters. He has just experienced the unthinkable. He has lost all of his wealth He has lost all of his children. He has essentially lost everything. And his wife, who can't bear to see him as hideous as he would have been, in saying to him, just curse God and get this over with. And if you curse God, he'll kill you and put you out of your misery. I cannot stand to see you like this. I mean, here, here's his wife who doubtless, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure he loved her so much, and I, I'm certain she loved him as well. But you would want to believe that your wife would stand by you, but she doesn't. And that had to hurt big time. And then these friends who I would imagine were close friends. It would stand to reason that they were close friends. And so they come and instead of comforting him, they start accusing him of having gross, unconfessed, secret sin in his life as the reason for all of the suffering in his life. And they they need for that to be true. It's not. 
Nothing can be further from the truth, but they need it to be true, true, because if it's not true, then their whole theology is systematically dismantled and even destroyed. What is that theology? That their theology is good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. If you're suffering in this way, it has to be that God is punishing you for sin. That's their theology. And they need it to be true. It's not. Because if it's not true, then what Job is suffering then would certainly, it would be plausible that they too could suffer a similar fate. And that's something that they cannot even begin to imagine. So they have to, in their way of thinking, believe and hold to that Job has sin in his life. And so because of that, they're accusing him, they're rebuking him, they're saying to him, you need to repent of this sin. And they're going back and forth, chapter after chapter. And by the way, this goes on until we get into the 30s. It's about chapter 38. So that's why we should probably do five chapters a week so we can get, because when we get towards the end of the book, especially to chapter 42, God is going to settle this once and for all. But we've kind of got to go through this whole process, this whole back and forth, because there are so many things that I believe God wants us to see here and learn from all of this. So verse 1, Job is speaking trying to defend himself. He says, man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one? He's speaking to God. And bring me to judgment with yourself. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. For there is hope for a tree if it is cut down that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease though Its root may grow old, verse 8, in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground. Yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. What is going on here? (laughs) Has Job lost his mind? Well, sort of. He certainly lost his ability to reason in the midst of such unspeakable suffering. Wouldn't you agree that when you're going through some difficulty, some tragedy, that you're not thinking straight? And keep in mind that Job has actually convinced himself, wrongly so, by the way, that God is against him. And this is why he's pleading with God, even comparing himself 
to the trees that he's doubtless looking at, saying, you know, if the tree is cut down, it's going to sprout back up. But what about me? What about me when I'm all parched and dried up and I lie down? I'm not going to rise. He's not rational. He's not rational. You know, one of the things I'm learning in my walk with the Lord is that when I'm under great distress or I'm very discouraged, uh, I know that I'm not thinking straight and I'm learning to never make a decision when I'm in that place. Years ago, my wife and I made probably one of the most important decisions we could have ever made in our marriage of now 30 years. And that decision was that we would never discuss weighty matters in the evening when we're very tired. That we would wait until the morning that, you know, because (laughs) we're so tired um, and, you know, it always would end up in a conflict. You know, i got to be careful here because as a pastor you expect me to have a perfect marriage. And I just want you to know that we do now have a perfect marriage. No, we don't. Uh, So we call uh, conflicts, we call arguments, we call them conflicts or discussions. The the pastor and his wife have discussions. A little heated, but they're still, you know, discussions. Okay, they're arguments, all right? There, I said it. So there was more of a propensity for us to get in an argument later at night because we're exhausted, we're not thinking straight, we're irritable, we're tired. And so we would make the decision that we would not discuss weighty matters until the next morning when God's mercies are new every morning. And we've had time to, you know, we've had a good night's sleep, hopefully. We wake up refreshed. We've had our time together with the Lord. We start off with prayer, and then we're better equipped to handle that weighty matter that we know we need to discuss. And uh, another thing, too, is we made the commitment that we would not let the sun go down on our anger, which reminds me of a great story that I heard from Dave Hunt, who's now with the Lord, Uh, And it goes like this. So this husband and wife are getting into this argument at night. And the husband boasts about how that we never let the sun go down on our anger. He says, here's what happens. So it's like two o'clock in the morning, and we've been going at it back and forth, arguing, and we will not go to bed. And sometimes it's two o'clock in the morning, and then that's the time when my wife comes crawling to me on her hands and knees, and she says to me, come out from underneath that bed and fight like a man, you coward. (laughs) I like that. Job is not making any sense now. I mean, he is thoroughly convinced that God is against him. He's not being rational, and he's fabricating in his mind all of these things due to his intense, and it is intense, suffering. He says, verse 14, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call, verse 15, and I will answer you. 
You shall desire the work of your hands, for now you number my steps. But do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you cover my iniquity. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. Wow. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. The best way that I was able to really kind of get my mind around this very difficult chapter, and this is a little bit difficult, because it's almost as if Job is insinuating that uh, God is being disproportionately cruel, and even unjust, and unfair, certainly as it relates to his suffering and what he's going through. But the best way that I was able to sort of reconcile it, for lack of a better way of saying it, is that Job, in his despair, and he is in despair, is trying to give voice to the frailty of man in light of the majesty of God. When you when you read through this, you you do have to realize that what he's saying about God is true. In other words, God is almighty, and God can do anything, and God is sovereign. He is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, he is all-present. And when you take that contrast and you put it up against where Job's at and what Job is suffering, it does bring to bear the frailty of man, the futility of man, and the brevity of the life of man. And this really is echoed by what James says, that our lives are but a vapor. We are here today and we are gone tomorrow. And this is what I believe he is reflecting on and giving voice to. It's as if he's pleading with God in prayer, hoping only for God to be merciful to him. There is this, this plea, this, this cry, and he does so because, and, and this is important, so stay with me. He does so because he know that, he knows that God could give him a respite, a relief, and he could do so in an instant, but doesn't. We call that a crisis of faith. And this is the crisis of faith that happens, not because God doesn't do something, it's because God doesn't do something we know He could do, but chooses not to. You know, we, we can have a crisis of faith because God maybe doesn't reveal Himself in a way that we would hope, something that doesn't happen that we want to happen, and we don't know, and we haven't seen or been the recipient of God doing something so magnificent in our lives. That's not Job's problem. 
Job's problem, he knows God. He knows what God can do, but doesn't. And that's his struggle. And there again is the why, and it's the cry, it's the why cry, if I can say it that way, of Job's heart. God, why? You could, in an instant, effortlessly, just in an instant, you could change my plight, but you choose not to. Why? Why, God? You are almighty in all of your majesty, and yet you choose not to. Well, chapter 15, you remember Eliphaz? So he was the first one to talk and open his mouth. And in all fairness, he was tactful and he was, you know, gracious in so much as, you know, he kind of, you know, came at it uh, gently. He walked into it instead of running into it. He still accused Job of having sinned, but he did it very tactfully. Well, (laughs) you can kiss that goodbye now, okay, in chapter 15. Listen to this. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge? There's a, uh, I hate to use it, but uh, there's an expression, uh, you know, the, you know, empty-headed. In Arabic, we actually have a, a saying, you know, oh, they're empty-headed. Uh, they, have, they have no brains. You know, basically, they're empty-headed, right? Um, uh, in, in uh, you know, English, I think, it, uh, you know, they, they have a, a box of rocks, uh, you know, in their head. There's just no, there's no brains there. That's, that's what he's saying. You're empty-headed. You, you, you <laughs> and then he says, and fill himself with the east wind. Uh, it's almost like he's saying, you're, you're just a windbag. In verse 3, should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? In other words, Job, <laughs> uh, all of your eloquent, you know, praying and crying out to God, what good is it doing? It's just, it's all empty words and it's because it comes from an empty head. Listen to verse 4. Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. And here it is again, verse 5. For your iniquity teaches your mouth. <laughs> the sin in your life, Job. You need to come clean. And you choose the tongue of the crafty. He's calling him deceptive, cunning, crafty. Verse 6, your own mouth condemns you and not I. In other words, all of those words that you speak, you're basically just digging yourself in deeper. And you're condemning yourself with your own words. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Are you, verse 7, and this is really, this is so arrogant. Are you the first man who was born? (laughs) Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? Only you possess the wisdom of the ages. What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that is not in us? 
Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? And the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? I mean, this is just riddled with accusation after accusation, basically saying to Job, who do you think you are? You think you know everything? You, you think you're, you're so smart and so wise? Verse 14, what is man that he could be pure? And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man, who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Certainly he's speaking of Job. This is a description of how he perceives Job. Impure, wicked, drinking the iniquity like water. Verse 17, I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen, I will declare what wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. He is, this is his talking point, and he's sticking with it. In fact, if anything, he's re-emphasizing it more and more emphatically. You writhe in pain, Job, because of sin in your life. Again, he, it has to be. Otherwise, all of his theology is completely destroyed. As Oswald Chambers says, his creed is out the window. It's gone. He needs Job to be a wicked man. That's the only explanation for this. Verse 21, dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. Remember now, Job was extremely prosperous. God had prospered Job exceedingly. He was exceedingly wealthy and it's kind of like he's rubbing it in Job's face, saying that in prosperity the destroyer comes upon him because of your wickedness, because of your secret sin. That's why God took away all of your prosperity. The book of Job shares the story of a man who has lost everything, but still clung to his faith in the goodness of God. This is an unusual concept, especially in a world that typically blames God for the evil that is around the world. God is still good no matter the difficulties you are facing in your own life. God is in control, and He will bring things to the conclusion He knows is right and perfect. He provides the peace and comfort you'll need to endure as well, along with the strength to continue forging ahead. Trust God. He's on your side. We hope you found encouragement and blessing through today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. We'd love to connect with you, so please take time to visit InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. 
Follow our links to Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and join the conversation already happening there. You'll learn more about our ministry at our website as well, and be able to catch the latest editions of the Mideast Prophecy Update. Each week, Pastor J.D. takes a look at current events of the world and compares them with scriptural teachings, sharing what God is teaching him through it all. You'll find these updates at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com as well as on our mobile app for Apple and Android phones. That brings us to the end of our time with you today. There's much more to discover in the book of Job. We hope you'll read ahead and ask God to reveal His truth through the words on the page. Join us on the next edition of In Spirit and Truth as Pastor J.D. continues his study in Job. Holding me true.